Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the fact that we can be together as a church body. All of this is possible because of you, Lord. This is all about you. This is all about what you've done in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is our focal point this morning and who should be the the center and the circumference of everything that we do in life. I pray that, Lord, that this morning the um, motivation and the objective would be that we would exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that is said from your word. May we walk away people who are changed, who are all the more committed to worshiping Christ and seizing upon the signs of the times, Lord, to see his name exalted, to see the gospel advanced and progressed. We ask you all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. And I want to read from Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 this morning. So if you just follow with me, I want to read that passage. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says this, He, that is the beloved Son from the end of verse 13, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven." May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. Well, this is the second part of a message that I began last week titled, The Glory of Christ, Preeminent in Creation. Um, And our focus is going to be verses 15 through 17. And if you remember last week, we saw that after Thanksgiving and prayer, uh, Paul presents the Colossians with a portrait or a picture of the glorious Christ in verses 15 through 20. Uh, This passage, verses 15 through 20, is believed by some to have been some type of an early Christian hymn. Uh, Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but we know it's inspired Scripture. And it is Paul's way of telling the Colossians, essentially, let me show you, Colossians, who Christ is, so that you will not be diverted away from Christ and drawn to other counterfeits, devoid of true wisdom and changing power. And the reason why they are being influenced, really at the core level, is based upon a deficient understanding of Christ. A deficient understanding of Christ. The main point, beloved, in verses 15 through 20, as we saw last week, is Paul wanting to to elevate the view of these Colossian believers' view of Christ. He wants to exalt Christ by showing that Christ is preeminent. That is the the main point, Christ's preeminence in verses 15 through 20. And we said that we're going to see Christ's preeminence in creation in verses 15 through 17, and that Christ is preeminent in redemption in verses 18 through 20. And I told you that from verses 15 through 17, I wanted us to see two aspects of Christ's preeminence in creation. 
We've already seen, first of all, that Christ is shown to be preeminent and that He uniquely reveals the Creator in the first half of verse 15. He uniquely reveals the Creator. And Paul's point is that far from an emanation from God, far from being some great spiritual being or angel, far from being a great moral teacher or a great prophet or some fictional character, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God. That's what he means by he is the image of the invisible God in the first part of verse 15. That the Son of God is of the same, not similar, but the same being, essence, nature, and divine attributes as the Father. Biblical Christianity worships the one true God who is the triune God who eternally exists and is revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, each person distinct and yet one in being, in essence, in nature, one God in three persons. What a glorious truth that is. That's because the Trinity, the Godhead, has been such a fighting doctrine over the, the history of the church. But Paul even makes the point in Ephesians chapter 1 that when you think about the Trinity, the Godhead, the three in one, it, is, it, should, it should evoke praise and adoration from us, not debate. Amen? Now, this truth that Jesus is God, as Paul is asserting and that others have asserted and that Jesus throughout his own lifetime asserted, is an astounding claim. If Jesus is God, listen to me, then Jesus cannot be easily dismissed. We must either believe in Him as the one whom He reveals Himself to be, the only one in whom we can have forgiveness and be made right before God, or we must reject Him as a lunatic, as a fool, and pronounce Him a heretic based upon the claims that He made. This was precisely the point that C.S. Lewis, the great writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other works, who was a great atheist, by the way, and then became a Christian apologist, the same point that he made some 70 years ago in some radio talks that he gave during World War II, eventually those World War II talks became the book that maybe some of you have read called Mere Christianity. Whether you agree with everything C.S. Lewis has written or even said in that book or not is a whole other story. I certainly don't agree with everything that he said. But I appreciate something that he wrote, a great quote that he said back in those radio talks concerning the claims of Christ. And he said this concerning the fact that Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. 
Lewis wrote that or said that some 70 years ago, and this is still true today, beloved. People have a very low view of Jesus. People love to believe in a Jesus who said a lot of very loving and very wise things. He was very tender and kind to people. But they reject his astounding claims to be God and thus fully authoritative in their life. But if you want salvation from your sins, you must believe that Jesus is God as he claimed to be. And you must believe that he came and died on the cross for your sins. And that he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death. You must believe that Jesus, who is God, is the only one who can save you from your sins. And you must put your faith in him. Otherwise, there is no salvation or hope for you. There is no middle ground. Either you put your faith in him or you reject him and suffer the consequences for that rejection. There is no middle ground when it comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul writes as fervently as he does in Colossians. Because the claims of Christ and who he is have a direct bearing upon one's eternal destiny, you see. Whether one chooses to believe him or not. And these Colossian Christians needed, as we do, a clear reminder about Christ's identity as the preeminent one who, who alone was their sufficiency. That because He is supreme, Christ is everything. Christ is the only one that they need. And some of these false teachers were saying, you need Christ, and it's good that you have Christ, but you need Christ plus something else, plus some philosophy, plus some syncretism, plus some uh, worship of angels. You need Christ plus some mysticism. And Paul says, no, if you have Christ, He alone is able to save you, and He alone is able to sanctify you. Jesus Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. And so last week we began looking at these two aspects of Christ's preeminence in creation. The first one, that Christ is uniquely reveals the Creator like no other, precisely because He Himself is God. And secondly... The second aspect of Christ's preeminence in creation that I want us to see this morning is this. Christ's preeminence in this passage is seen in that He supremely rules in creation. He supremely rules in creation. And if you're taking notes, the second major point has really two sub-points, okay? In the second half of verse 15, Paul presents Christ as the supreme ruler And then in verses 16 through 17, Paul proves Christ to be the supreme ruler by expanding upon the statement of the latter half of verse 15. Okay? So Paul presents Christ as supreme ruler in creation first and foremost. Look at the the second half of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, again, as I told you last week, Uh, with reference to the word image in the first part of verse 15, this word firstborn has been the the object of so much debate over centuries and centuries of of church history. Uh, Sadly so, because we missed a point of what Paul is actually saying here concerning Christ. At first glance, this word firstborn, prototokos in the Greek, might seem to, to support what the false teachers in Colossae are saying Uh, partially teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, that He was a great, heavenly, created being. In fact, that He was the greatest created being of all. 
In fact, uh, if there, are, there are some cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, who would eagerly point you to this particular verse here and say that this word firstborn is really a denial of the deity of Christ. By saying that this word firstborn means first created one in a chronological sense. Uh, I want you to know, beloved, that this heresy is nothing new. Nothing new. They are making the same arguments concerning the person of Christ that a man by the name of Arius made in the 4th century A.D. Arius was a false teacher who was condemned by the church for teaching a heresy titled after his own name called Arianism, which essentially denied the eternality and the deity of the Son of God. And Arius taught that at some point before creation, God created the Son. That the Son is a great supernatural being of a similar, note, similar nature as the Father, but not of the same exact nature. And previous to God creating the Son and the Spirit, they simply did not exist. Well, thankfully, the church rejected Arius' teaching at what is known as the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, which also led to the writing of what we know as the Nicene Creed, which fully asserts the Son of God's eternality and the deity of Christ. Now listen, we don't need to be afraid of false cults. When they point you to a verse like this and they attempt to define the word firstborn as, as first created in a chronological sense... You and I simply need to apply the most basic, simple, and straightforward rule of Bible interpretation. Calvary Bible Church, what is it? Context, right? Context is king. Context ultimately determines what a word means and how it is being used in a particular passage of Scripture. Context is super important. And while in some context, the the word firstborn can refer to first one created, chronologically speaking, context determines how this word firstborn is being used here in Colossians chapter 1. First of all, if by firstborn Paul meant that Christ was first created before anything else, then what came before the the second half of verse 15 in Paul's statement that, that he is the image of the invisible God doesn't make sense whatsoever. If the word firstborn means first one created in a chronological sense. Paul has just told us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Which means that Christ, the Son, is everything that God is in His essential being, in His nature, and shares the same divine perfections as the Father. This is what it means that He is the image of God. It doesn't make any sense that Paul would have said that. That Paul would have asserted that Christ is fully God, and then he says that Christ is a created being. Previous context. Furthermore, we will see that in verses 16 and following, the following context, if you will, are going to expand upon the latter half of verse 15 and what it means that the Son is the firstborn of all creation. And Paul is going to tell us that Christ is the supreme and sovereign ruler over all creation. Why would Paul make such an astounding assertion concerning Christ if Christ is a created being? Why would he do that? It doesn't make any sense. And frankly, think about it logically. If Paul is saying that Christ is the first created being, chronologically speaking, then isn't he agreeing with the false teachers he's trying to refute? 
Why would he say that? Why would he be essentially writing to support the very attack of the false teachers upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? That would be counterproductive, wouldn't it? And by the way, in case you need another argument, and there are many others, if Paul wanted to assert that the Son of God was created first, using this word firstborn in a chronological sense, he could certainly have used another Greek word in the, in the, in the Greek language, protoktesis, which signified first created one in a chronological sense. That was available for him to, to use as well if he wanted to make the point without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was created by God the Father. He could have used a different word. The reality of it is, is that no one ever used that Greek word protoktesis as in first created of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever did. Because he wasn't, he isn't a created being, you see. He is of the same essential nature and essence as the Father. That is Paul's point. He is preeminent. And I'm sorry to get so worked up about this. But I hope that you get worked up about it too, right? This is a heresy that our Lord Jesus Christ being a created being and being anything less than God is a damning heresy, beloved. A damning heresy. And we need to be prepared to defend the deity of Christ as it is being taught even here in Colossians. Listen to me. In this context, firstborn does not mean first one created in a chronological sense. So what does it mean? Well, well, in some context, it could have reference to time as in first one created. In this context, it clearly has the meaning of Christ being preeminent. He is preeminent. He is sovereign ruler over all. Christ, as the preeminent one, has all of the rights and the privileges and the authority and rule over all creation precisely because He, he is the heir of all things. Hebrews 1-2 says that the Son of God who is Christ is the heir of all things. What does an heir do? An heir exercises preeminence, authority, rule, and dominion over everything that he owns, does he not? That's what an heir does. And so what Paul means by firstborn here, he means that Christ is preeminent, supreme over everything. Including the inheritance that God the Father has given him. For example, if you were to pass on your home and your cars, etc. to one of your kids because he or she is the firstborn. Not only are they taking possession over that inheritance, but they have the right to do what they wish with that inheritance, do they not? To exercise dominion over that inheritance. That's Paul's point here. That Christ is the preeminent one, as the heir of all things, has all of the rights and privileges and authority over all things, as we will see. That's what he means. This meaning of firstborn as preeminent is consistent with the, with the word's ancient use. In the ancient times, to be the firstborn most importantly meant preeminence in the sense of the right of leadership and authority as the firstborn. That's what it meant primarily. And there are some other examples where this word firstborn means preeminence in position, rights, and privileges. For example, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, for instance, God calls Israel, his nation, my firstborn. And in that context, it was not that Israel was the, was the first nation born. 
It wasn't that, that Israel was the first nation created. There were other nations in existence. But what it means that Israel is the firstborn is that Israel was God's firstborn, his special people who received special privileges by virtue of God's grace and His choosing. That's what it meant. And the, the, His special chosen people were going to, to be the objects of that special inheritance that He was going to pass on to them, and they were going to exercise authority and dominion and rule over that particular land. See, the idea there of firstborn is preeminent. His special chosen people to whom He would give that particular inheritance. This idea of preeminence is also seen in Psalm 89, verse 27. Where there, God says of David, I shall make him, that is David, my firstborn. And then he clarifies what he means by firstborn. He says, the highest or the most exalted of the kings of the earth. That's what it means for David to be his firstborn is that he is the highest or the most exalted of the kings of the earth. In other words, that David is going to have preeminence over this over God's future kingdom through the line of David is going to come ultimately the Messiah. He was of higher rank than all of the other kings because he was God's special chosen king through whom the forever king would come. Beloved, we can go to other places. But my point is this. Firstborn, while in some context does have reference to first in time, came to mean the most important thing that it came to mean was preeminence. Preeminence. This is the meaning here in Colossians 1.15, that Christ, the Son of God, is preeminent over all creation. He has preeminence of rank and position and divine privileges. Listen to me. It is not the meaning of the term, this particular term, that, that He was created in a chronological sense. Why else would the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, point to the Son of God as the firstborn in Hebrews 1.6 and call upon us and exhort us to worship Him? Isn't God a jealous God? Why would God point to His own Son and say, let all the angels and all the creatures worship Him if He wasn't God Himself? Jesus Christ is the preeminent one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, beloved. And we should worship Him for who He is. Amen? I want to ask you this morning, past the apologetics, and more to devotion. Is this the way that you think about Jesus? When you read on the pages of Holy Scripture about this one in the Gospels who spoke great words of life, who did great works, who healed people, who spoke kindly, who expressed goodness and graciousness and gentleness, but also did not shy away from pronouncing judgment upon those who rejected Him. Do you see that Jesus as the preeminent one? Is He supreme in your life? See, for most of us, if we were to get a show of hands, we would give lip service to this truth. That yes, Jesus is preeminent, but our lives, beloved, would tell quite a different story, would they not? Our lives would tell quite a different story. We show that Christ is not supreme over our lives by the very way that we live and the, the way that we don't keep kingdom priorities in our life. If He is preeminent, it's going to show in the way that we live. None of us in here, none of us would dare tell our spouse, Honey, 
You are most important to me. You have first place in my heart and life. I want you to know that. And yet behind their back, we're having or we're engaged in an affair. None of us would dare say that to our spouses, would we? I am so devoted to you in my heart and in my life. And yet behind their backs, we are involved in some affair. It would only prove that we don't mean that they are first place in our hearts, would it? Why is it that we do, we undo with our lives, beloved, that which we profess with our lips? If the Bible says that Jesus is preeminent, that He is the supreme ruler, then let us live that way, beloved. Let us be devoted to the kingdom and the righteousness of Christ on this earth. Let us be investing into kingdom priorities. If we believe that we worship the supreme ruler of the universe. Amen? We should show it in the way that we live. Let us cease to set up other idols in the throne room of our hearts. Goals, selfish goals, pleasures, lusts, secret lusts. Let us cease giving our way over to temptation, to sin. If Christ is the ruler, the supreme ruler of our hearts and lives, beloved, if we affirm this truth, then He is going to be the one that directs your decisions. He is going to be the object of your affections. He is going to be the one whose word matters most to you. And the greatest thing that you will ask any when you're making any decision or pursuing anything in life is going to be, Jesus, what is it that you want for my life? You are the preeminent one. You are the supreme ruler over my life. Lord, it is all about you. What is it that you want me to do regardless of how much it costs me? If he is preeminent in our lives, if he is truly supreme, then no one else will sit on the throne of our hearts, beloved, but Jesus Christ, who is Lord and Savior of our lives. No one else will. We know how the story ends in Revelation, do we not? That this one who reigns supreme right now is the focus in Revelation 4. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is the centerpiece of that throne room scene in heaven. The focus of praise and adoration will be directed all at the Lamb of God. Beloved, why live life any different now? If He is going to reign supreme forevermore, why not acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior of your life now and stop wasting your life pursuing things that at the end of the day will never satisfy you or bring ultimate joy? Christ is supreme. And Paul presents Him here as a supreme ruler over creation in the latter half of verse 15. And now he proves it. He proves it in verses 16 through 17. Here's the proof of Christ's supreme rule in creation in verses 16 through 17. In other words, Christ's unique position as the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one is now in verses 16 through 17 amplified or explained by these verses. Now this supreme rule in creation is proven by means of three attributes of Christ. Beautiful attributes of Christ. And the first one is this in verse 16, in that Christ is absolutely sovereign over creation. Christ is absolutely sovereign. Paul wants to prove to us 
that Christ is supreme ruler, and now he's going he's to essentially give us attributes of Christ, assertions, indicatives that are true of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first one in verse 16 is all about the sovereignty of Christ. And I want you to see this. This is so beautiful. This is where grammar, I realize that some of this will be very kind of technical, but I want you to listen to this and watch what he does here. In verse 16, it is all about the sovereignty of Christ. And there are three prepositional phrases here in verse 16 that I want to to highlight for you that point to Christ's complete sovereignty over creation. Notice in verse 16. First of all, at the beginning of verse 16, he says, For by him all things were created. By him. Really, it should be translated in him. And then toward the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. So at the beginning of verse 16, for by him all things were created. And then toward the end of verse 16, all things have been created through him and for him. All of these prepositional phrases point to the fact that Christ is absolutely sovereign over creation. Look at the first one in verse 16 at the beginning of verse 16. He says, for by or in him all things were created. That preposition should be translated in. And it indicates sphere. That in Christ all things were created. This is one of Paul's favorite phrases. In Christ. In him. And oftentimes it's difficult for us to determine what Paul means by in him. But at the end of the day, I submit to you that what he means by in Christ, in him, is that nothing happens, whether salvation or creation, but in Christ. Christ is the sphere in which all things were created. Listen, when God created the universe, God did not work independent of the Son, but in the Son. It's the same idea conveyed in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 concerning God's choosing of sinners. God chose us in Christ, Paul says, in Christ before the foundation of the world, meaning that there is no salvation for sinners independent of Christ. It is all in Christ. So contrary to what the false teachers taught, that Christ was a created being, Paul tells us here that Christ... Christ could not have been created because He is central and indispensable to all of creation because in Him all things were created. He is the sphere in which all things were created. He is indispensable. All creation, if you want to put it this way, depends upon Christ. Notice the second preposition at the end, toward the end of verse 16. He says, All things have been created Through him. We're going to come back to the all things soon enough. But toward the end of verse 16, he says, All things have been created through him. So not only in him at the beginning of the verse, but through him. Here is a preposition through, which means agency. And this means that that the Son of God is is the only agent in creation. Let me put it to you this way. God, the Father, originated, is the source of creation, and the Son is the agent or the executor of all of creation. He is the one who carried out the master plan, if you will. Both both persons of the Godhead, Father and Son and Spirit, were actively involved, beautifully involved in creation, beloved. When you look at the person of Christ, this is who He is. All creation depends upon Him. All creation was mediated through the Son. 
He is the divine architect, if you will, of creation. Now, where do I get this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. I want to show you this because I think it's so important. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. Paul is giving instructions here in 1 Corinthians 8 on Christian liberty. But in the flow of that particular issue, there is something for us to glean from here. He says in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6, notice, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. That preposition from emphasizes source or origin. So the Father is the source or the origin. And then he says, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. There's the preposition that can also be translated through, as in, as in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, which means agency. Which means agency. So note, everything is from the Father originates with the Father and through the Son. God the Father is the originator of all things, and God the Son is the agent, the one who who carried out or executed the master plan, if you will. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 says this, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. And here it is, through whom, the Son, He made the world. Beloved, listen. Christ is supreme ruler and sovereign by virtue of the fact that He is the divine architect of creation. All things are dependent upon Him, for in Him all things were created, and through Him He is the agent. He is the divine executor, if you will, of creation. The next time that you read about this Jesus of Nazareth, think about Him that way. Think about Him as the supreme sovereign of the universe. Now notice the third preposition back in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. At the end of the verse. Paul says there, All things have been created through Him. And at the end of verse 16 he says, And for Him. Christ's sovereign rule over all creation is shown here in that all things are ultimately for Him. All things have Christ as their ultimate goal and purpose. That's what He means by for Him. Everything exists to serve Him, if you will. Since He is the heir of it all. Christ alone exercises dominion over creation. He does whatever He wants with creation consistent with what the Father wants. So summarizing verse 16, notice this. In verse 16 alone, all things have been created by or in Him, through Him, and for Him. All things created are dependent on Christ. They're in Christ, in Him they were created. They're mediated by Christ, through Christ, and they're ruled by Christ for Him. Christ, beloved, is absolutely sovereign over all creation. And by all things, Paul means all things. All things. Is He preeminent and supreme over terrorists in the Middle East? Absolutely He is. Is He preeminent over those who are killing babies or making decisions to take life away? Absolutely He is. 
Is he preeminent over those who are destroying the, the, the foundational structure of society, the family, marriage between a man and a woman? Is he preeminent over those people? Absolutely he is. He is preeminent, supreme ruler over everything, beloved. All things. All things. There is nothing that Jesus is not sovereign ruler over. And one day, His patience will run thin, and He's coming back to deliver the final death blow. Amen? Now, Paul does not want to leave the absolute supremacy and the sovereignty of Christ over all things ambiguous. And notice... Notice, what does he mean by all things? He starts expanding upon this in verse 16. Notice, this is the case spatially speaking, if you will. All things, both in the heavens and on the earth, in verse 16. In the heavens and on the earth. There's nothing in the heavens, moon and stars and planets and galaxies and Milky Way, that he is not in control over, that he does not rule over. There's nothing on the earth, land and sea and creatures, including you and I, and those of you out there who are rejecting Christ as I speak. He is sovereign over your life. This is the case visually speaking. All things visible and invisible, he says in verse 16. Everything you can see, everything you can't see. Paul wants to cover absolutely everything. Anything that you can see or not see, everything has been created in Christ and he reigns supreme over it. There is nothing visible or invisible in creation that is not dependent upon Christ. That he doesn't rule over. He is absolutely sovereign This is the case, spiritually speaking. All things, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Some people think that what Paul is speaking about here is most likely earthly rulers. I think he's talking about spiritual forces, spiritual beings. And that's how they appear, some of these words in other contexts, such as Ephesians 6. Where Paul tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I think these thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities are those spiritual forces. Spiritual beings that are powerful. Who exercise authority. The angelic realm, the highest of powers, even rankings within these particular beings that exist. Jesus Christ sovereignly rules over creation, over that demonic realm. Even over the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, he is proving comprehensively and universally covering every corner of the universe here. To make the point that Christ reigns supreme over everything, seen or unseen. There's not a single thing in the universe that Christ is not sovereign over, beloved. And you know what Paul is doing here? He is essentially rebuking directly the Colossian false teachers. Because if you notice in chapter 2 and verse 18, one of the things that they were promoting was the worship of angels, were they not? And Paul essentially says, let me tell you where angels, angelic beings, and spiritual forces fit with in reference to Christ. He reigns over all of them. All spiritual beings, regardless of their rank, regardless of their great stature, regardless of their majestic appearance and form, and some of them are absolutely majestic, are they not? Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, and other passages, Ezekiel, when we see these angelic beings, they are fearful, are they not? They're remarkable and wondrous. And yet, beloved, listen to me. The next time that you get enamored by angels in Holy Scripture, remember that Jesus reigns supreme over them. And they are there at His every waking call. 
to minister to him and to minister to his people. He is absolutely sovereign over all of them, supreme ruler over the angelic being. Isn't that what we see in the Gospels, by the way? We read in the Gospels, and Jesus in his humanity showed us his sovereign and supreme rule over the demonic realm, did he not? You remember the time when, when there's a, a demoniac that approaches him? And Jesus asks the demon inside of this guy. He says, what is your name? Do you remember what the demoniac answered? Legion, for we are many. You know what, how many demons are a legion? 6,000. 6,000 demons. No wonder... When they try to tie this guy up with chains, he would break those chains like toothpicks. They were nothing. Because these demons are powerful, spiritual forces. And yet, what does Jesus do? He simply speaks, commands them, and they even ask him permission to go into the swine. And he says, okay, go over to the swine. And that was the end of those demons. Did he have to fight them physically? Oh, no. By the word of his power. Supreme ruler over the angelic, demonic realm, beloved. That's how mighty Jesus is. Talk about sovereign rule. That's who we're talking about here. The preeminent one. The supreme ruler over everything. So the point of verse 16 is that Christ is supreme ruler by virtue of His sovereignty over all creation, over all things, beloved. Over all things. The first attribute in verse 16 that Paul points to to prove that Christ is supreme ruler is His sovereignty. That in Him all things were created. That through Him all things were created and for Him. He is sovereign. He is a supreme ruler over it all. Now notice, at the beginning of verse 17, Christ is eternal. Christ is eternal. He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. That first part has to, has to do with the, the pre-existence of Christ. He Himself is the idea there. Emphatically, He Himself is before all things. Before creation itself, beloved, the Son of God was uncreated. Uncreated. He has always existed before all things. This is a reference to His pre-existence. Before creation itself, the Son of God has always been like God, He has eternally existed before all things. This is why John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He is preexistent. He is eternal. Listen to me. His humanity was not the beginning of His existence. Alright? It wasn't. The Son of God has always been not created, eternal, forever He has been. I used to, to lay there at night as a little boy and it would frighten me the thought that, that God could exist forever and ever and ever. I don't know about some of you kids if you ever have had that thought. Laying there as a little boy, it frightened me to think, that how could it be before my mom? Before my grandmother? Before my great-grandmother? How could it be that He has always existed? It's true. It's true, you see. And even though our puny little minds can't understand these great realities, this is who He is. The one who has always been the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Always been. 
Notice the fact that Christ is also sustainer. That's attribute number three. All creation is sustained by Christ. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And here's this beautiful phrase again. In Him, all things hold together. In Him, all things hold together. All things, big things, small things, visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, everything that you see, beloved, everything that you can't see, are sustained by Almighty Christ. So listen, the universe was created in Him, dependent upon Him, by Him, or through Him. He's the divine agent, the executor of creation, for Him as the goal. But the universe is sustained permanently in Christ alone. He is the divine sustainer. In other words, from the very beginning, Christ was actively involved carrying out the Father's orders to create, and Christ has sustained the universe ever since. Every cosmic entity... Large or small, every molecule, little things, things that we can't even see, big things, small things, Christ sustains it all, beloved. Apart from Christ, everything would instantly fall apart and disintegrate. Apart from His sustaining hand, chaos would break out. Everything would break down. Christ is a unifying band, if you will, that holds everything together. He's the divine adhesive. So to summarize this, the proof of Christ's supreme rule over all creation is shown to us in that He's sovereign, He's eternal, and He's a sustainer of all things. You know what Paul has just done? He has just shattered the false teacher's diminished view of Christ, has he not? That Christ is much greater than their philosophy, much greater than angelic beings because they're subservient to Him, their theories concerning the great forces of the universe. Everyone bows to the Lord of the universe, the supreme ruler, Christ. Everyone does. Christ supremely rules. He's the Lord of creation. This flies in the face of deism, doesn't, doesn't it? Deism, the view that there is a God who created the world, but has left it ever since to fend for itself. No. We don't worship a king who does not intervene in the affairs of his creation, who is not in control of his creation, who is distant, who is uninvolved in his creation. We worship one who is in absolute supreme control over all things. All things. Beloved, what God's Word is telling us here, is that the Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, that walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, that Jesus of Nazareth is the supreme one over creation and that He supremely and sovereignly rules over it all. He is in absolute control. He is eternal. He is sustainer. He is pre-existing. He's the sovereign King of the universe. And He's coming back. He's coming back someday. And may I remind us, as I did last week, That our appropriate response, when we understand and we see this portrait, this picture of Christ, is to worship He who is infinitely worthy of our worship. He is worthy to be worshipped, beloved. This is why the psalmists, recognizing who God is, recognizing His glory, plead with the hearers as they're being inspired by the Spirit of God to worship the One who alone is worthy, you see. Psalm 29 
Listen to how the psalmist, in light of who he is, exhort us and plead with us to adore and to worship him. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he's sovereign. Because he's sustainer. Because he's the king of the universe. Because he's good and merciful and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So we should ascribe glory and strength to the one who is infinitely worthy. Amen? Psalm 96, listen to this. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations. His wonderful deeds among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Bring an offering and come into His court. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all of the earth. How beautiful, isn't it? How beautiful. You should start your devotions every single day reading a psalm. And praying those words back to the Lord, full of joy, that you worship the supreme ruler of the universe, beloved. The more that we understand Him, the more we see Him for who He is, the more we should be driven to worship Him. And that all of our priorities in life and possessions are all devoted to Him and for His kingdom. Amen? That's what our response ought to be. See, the psalmist utter words like this because they recognize who he is and the only appropriate response is worship and service to this one who is infinitely worthy of our worship. And by the way, may I remind you this morning, Christ is the one who sovereignly rules over the situation going on in the Middle East. Over the terrorists, right? Amen? He absolutely rules over the Muslims. He absolutely does. I can understand, on the one hand, the unbeliever in the world who is, who is fearful and who's fully concerned about his or her comfort because this world is the best life now for them. I can't fathom or understand why it is that believers were literally having a cow the last three or four weeks when this thing broke out in Paris. Utter despair from believers all over Facebook, all over Twitter, all over the news, even giving testimony to the fact that they are worried and concerned. How could that be? How could that be, beloved? That we as believers would run to the idol of comfort would be driven to fear. I was astounded by the way Christians responded, even to, to, to people who are here from the Middle East, Syrians who are already here, take away their visas, even believers. You know what? We ought to go in and confiscate everything that they have because we need to protect our own. Even believers, beloved, were responding that way. How could that be? That we operate and function like practical atheists as believers when we look at the world around us and the difficult things that are happening. If we truly believe that Christ is preeminent, He's a supreme ruler over all, then we should trust in Him, should we not? We should trust Him. 
And we should know that He's sovereign and that if He's allowing this to happen, maybe He wants the gospel to progress and advance. How about that one? Maybe that's what He wants. Do you know that for years and years and years, there have been missionaries who have been trying to get inroads into some of these places like Syria, where there are 18 unreached people groups coming amongst uh, out of that place? Guess what? They don't have to keep preparing and trying to strategize these missionaries to try to find ways of getting in there to share the gospel. They're coming to us. Whoa! It's like God is sovereign or something. Right? He is supreme ruler, beloved. Christ is the one who supremely rules over terrorists. Does he rule over mass murders? Yes or no? Yes. Will he accomplish justice someday? Absolutely. He will. Is he sovereign over corrupt politicians who are all about themselves and their own agendas? Absolutely. How about those who kill babies, even if respectably so? Absolutely he's sovereign. Absolutely he's supreme. How about those who corrupt marriages? How about difficult neighbors that you live amongst? How about a difficult work environment? Does God have control over your life? Does He or does He not? He does, beloved. He does. Difficult work environments, bosses that are difficult to get along with, financial strain. The one who sovereignly rules over natural disasters is very much completely in control of your life. He created all and He sovereignly rules over all, beloved. So that we who are believers who have faith in Christ can look at the sufferings of this present world and one day they will be no more because Jesus, the preeminent one, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the preeminent one, the supreme ruler over all, is coming to make it all right, beloved. We just have to be patient and endure and He gives us all of the grace to be able to do that. All of it. If Christ is supreme ruler, then we have Sure hope. I don't know about you, but I don't want to worship a God who's not sovereign. I don't want to worship some Greek mythology God. Weak. Feeble. I want to worship this kind of God right here. This one true God who is preeminent and supreme, who is absolutely in control over everything. And I want you to know that our God, revealed in the person of Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, is already fixing a world that is terribly broken, beloved, because He's the Lord of the universe. He's fixing it. It has already started by virtue of the fact that the Son came and suffered and died on the cross and rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that by believing in Him, you can have life in His name. You want to have hope in this life? You want to cease being hopeless? You want to stop banking on the, on the pursuit of the pleasures of this world? Give your life to Christ. Turn from your sins today. Repent of your sins, of living for yourself, and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of your soul. Only in Him can you find forgiveness. Only in Him. And then, if you are His, you can look upon the difficulties going on in, the, in, in our country and the world around us. And instead of being fearful, you can say, opportunity. Seizing upon that opportunity for the advancement of the gospel. All that's taking place. 
Other foreign peoples coming in amongst us. Opportunities to share Christ. Yes, we should be careful. Yes, we should take precautions. Yes, we should be concerned about security, national security and safety. But don't let comfort become your idol, beloved. Don't let comfort become your idol. It's all about advancing the kingdom, is it not? And that begins by you following Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Christ is preeminent in creation, beloved. That is Paul's point. Christ alone uniquely reveals God and supremely rules over all creation. And my desire and my passion for us is that we would be people who would worship Him and who would serve Him gladly. Amen? No matter how difficult things get. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, O Lord, You are a good God. You are a God who has already began begun to fix that which is broken in this world. And all that is left is the delivering, delivering of the final death blow when your Son returns. Lord, I pray that we would not, Lord, worship or think upon Jesus as a feeble little man who makes no depend, demands upon our lives, Lord, but who requires everything if we're going to follow Him, Lord. Help us to count the cost of following Christ. Help us, Lord, to be people who, Lord, don't compromise, who are not fearful at the things that are going on around us, but that we would be reminded that, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that He's the preeminent one, that He's supreme ruler, and that, Lord, He's returning. And we know how this story will end, Lord. Help us to live life now, not wasting it away, not pursuing pleasures or lusts or goals Selfish goals, Lord, that at the end of the day have nothing to do with you, Lord. Father, help us that Christ would be the center and the circumference of everything in our life. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this afternoon, Lord, in whose heart you do not reign supreme, that, Lord, today would be the day of salvation for them, Lord. Help them to plead with you, Father, for forgiveness found only in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ the one who came and suffered, took upon your wrath upon himself for our sins, that by believing in him we may have life in his name. Father, I pray that today would be the day when they would give their life to you, Father. Father, be with us the rest of this day. Lord, as we enjoy a wonderful meal together, help us to enjoy one another's fellowship as children of the King. Help us to reach out to one another. Help us to love one another. Help us to enjoy this meal together, Lord. And even as we go out, Father, passing out tracks and Christmas concert tickets, Father, help us to seize upon the opportunity that we have. What a wonderful opportunity to be a part of your grand enterprise of the gospel. How privileged people we are. You don't need us. You don't need any of us. But help us, Lord, to count it a joy and a privilege to serve you, Lord. And we ask you all of these things, Father, in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.